0: From the Blink Labs headquarters in Berlin, Germany, this is the Blinkist Podcast. Uh, if you're new to the Blinkist Podcast, welcome. Uh, the idea is, you know, we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world, trying to get into the heads of the inspiring and genius people who are behind these books. I'm Ben, the producer, and welcome to our Olympics-themed episode, which is right on time because the Olympics start a today. Today, we have, I'm really excited about this, we have the author of The Sports Gene, David Epstein. Uh, the Sports Gene is a, is a New York Times bestseller about exactly what it sounds like, whether or not there are things that make certain people more likely to be good at sports than other people. Things like genes or body type or the environment they did training in or family life. David's a journalist. Uh, He used to work for Sports Illustrated. He's working for ProPublica. He just did a piece for This American Life recently that we talk about in the interview. You can find his work all over the place, whether it's Slate, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and more. Kind of a perfect guest with the Olympics starting right now. Plus, we went to the same high school, I found out. So that's fun. Uh, The coolest thing in the interview, I think, uh, was talking a little bit about Dan McLaughlin, who's a guy who, inspired by what's called the 10,000 hour rule he decided to go off and do 10,000 hours of deliberate practice with golf to be a professional golf player. So we check in on that story and see how far he's gone basically. Before we go into the interview, I do want to give a quick plug to our last episodes, which were about Eureka. You can find those interviews on our SoundCloud page or just search Blinkus Podcast in iTunes. If you subscribe, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Uh, turns out those things actually really do help out. So um, it'd be cool if you did that. All right, let's roll the tape. Here's me and David Epstein. Catch you guys in the outro. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I learned in your book that we both are and Township High School graduates and probably... No yeah, and Yeah, bo- and probably have our faces a couple of years apart on the all-conference wall by the gym, if they still have that up there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but cool. So, um... First of all, are you going to Rio, actually? I'm not. Why not? You know, actually, I've been
1: moving away from sports, really. I've been, since post my book, I've been more of kind of just a general investigative reporter, and ProPublica doesn't really have, doesn't really make sense for ProPublica to send someone to uh, Rio. Yeah. And there was a a point at which we were talking about me going for Sports Illustrated, and then a lot of changes occurred to Sports Illustrated, and they're sending a smaller team than um, in the past anyway, so...
0: Well, I hope it's still cool if we can talk about sports stuff because, Absolutely. okay, cool. Because we did, we're doing like a magazine issue on the Olympics and we're not like diving as much into the competitions as much as these sort of human aspects that yeah. your book ties perfectly into. So for example, one thing that we're really into is this 10,000 hour rule, the Ericsson thing. Mm-hmm. And it remains like stubbornly popular and influential in everywhere. Yep. So I was wondering if you had any uh, progress updates from Dan McLaughlin, the golf guy. Could you maybe tell his story a little bit and then give an update on his progress?
1: Sure. So Dan um, is a guy who who was kind of not totally content with his career as a commercial photographer and decided, saved some money and decided he wanted to make a big change in his life. And at first he thought that was going to be you know, business school, basically, and very quickly felt that that wasn't as drastic. A, Changes he needed read about the ten thousand hour rule. This idea that there's there's no such thing as uh, talent. It's just the you know skills, the manifestation of ten thousand hours of practice. And decided instead to take that money and save for grad school, and put it toward funding himself training in golf, which he was almost a complete novice. You know he'd been to driving ranges and things like that. He try to put in ten thousand hours of training with a PGA certified coach and everything like that, and see where he was when he got to ten thousand hours. Um and so he's he's still en route. He's past halfway.
0: He's past halfway.
1: Yeah, and although last time, so and he made he made great progress early on, um, and last time he contacted me, he said I feel like I'm stagnating, kind of both personally in my journey and and skill wise. So I think he's in the part of the learning curve that's a little tougher now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because my feeling was when I wrote about him in in the sports gene, my feeling wasn't oh, he's definitely not going to make it. It was to use his story to show that the 10,000-hour rule has, like, no basis in reality for an individual person. It's an average of these humongous individual differences that, by its nature, squashes the reality of individual variability. And so to see someone apply it to themselves as if it's a rule for individuals, when there's, like, literally no one... You know, the the original study that led to the 10,000-hours rule, like... Some people had less, some people had more, and it averaged out, right? You look at other things like chess. It takes 11,053 hours to become an international master in chess, but some people make it in 3,000 hours, and some people are at 25,000 hours and still haven't made it. So, like, you can average it and get an 11,053-hour rule, but when you actually include measures of variance, it would seem a lot sillier for someone to say, like, all right, I'm going to put in the 11,053 hours, and then I'm going to be there.
0: Mm -hmm. And this was an opportunity to track somebody from hour zero,
1: Yeah, and and I also thought it was interesting because he said, you know, he contacted Erickson and said, yeah, you know, Professor Erickson was really excited because nobody had tested this before. And I was like, that's exactly, exactly right. Mm. He has not tested, you know, he's not tested almost any of his predictions, essentially. And Erickson himself acknowledges, kind of implicitly acknowledges the failures of his model when it comes to novices. So he says, you have to only study people who are the best, which is like, you're positing a comprehensive model of expertise that can't account for squares zero to 99, which means it's not a model of expertise.
0: Yeah. And the thing that I learned most about it was this, the deliberate practice aspect of it. Also, you can't, um, you can't watch 10,000 hours of American Idol or something and then think you're going to win it.
1: Yeah. You know, and that aspect of it, I actually think is a real contribution. Um, the deliberate practice focusing on, a certain type of practice, right? Because sometimes I will hear people say, you know, well, I could I could run or I could golf. You know, I've done this many hours and I haven't gotten to the pros. And you're like, yeah, but you're like going to the driving range and sort of swatting balls. You're not trying to identify your weaknesses and work on them and, and sort of cognitively engage. So it's, it's really different. You know, th- there's some really interesting <laughs> literature in, in things like air traffic controlling and chess and speed typing, you know, things that are that have these great bodies of research. And, and I thought typing was so interesting because it's clear that we could all type faster than we do. We just sort of get to a really good spot and then settle. And what we'd have to do to get better would be like to set some kind of, you know, metronome type as fast as we can, not worry about errors and just go at that speed. So you start getting accustomed to that mm-hmm. speed. And that's how you'd sort of get off a plateau. Like people who sort of like compete in this, there, there are such people. Um, but most, mostly we settle at, at at good enough. And so I think the idea that there's a type of practice that gets you off plateaus is actually a very valuable uh, contribution. It, actually, I, I was just literally yesterday, spent the whole day with a researcher who studies some of this, that people simultaneously overestimate how good they currently are at things and us underestimate how much better they could get, which is Whoa. kind of a, a lethal combination, right? It would be much better if we underestimated how good we are now and overestimated how good we could get. but. Turns out, human nature is the opposite.
0: And is it, man? There's a lot there. Like the the typing thing. I wanted to say is it these things where the only way to get better is to break it down, though, right? If you have to take apart the whole machine or the whole way that you're used to typing. Like, for example, I'm really bad at my left pinky. Uh I know I'm bad at my left pinky. I never use my left shift. And the idea of like breaking down my technique, and I think it does apply to sports, and it does apply to like other, I don't know, fields. I would, I know I would have to like consciously type slower for a couple of weeks in order to then be good at my left pinky and then be able to type much faster.
1: Maybe. So it, 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 it turns out that, um, explicit and implicit learning operate differently. And for the most part, ultimately what you would do in, in motor learning would be implicit. So you'd want to, you know, make your pinky work sort of without you having to consciously think about the movements. So the, the best scenario would be if you could set up a situation that forced you to try to type fast that was using your pinky in the ways that you were weak at so that you didn't have to sort of explicitly identify you know, you identified your weakness you've already done that which is great and um, you know to, to set it up in a, in a way that sort of forces you to, mm-hmm. to do the training you should be doing basically
0: mm-hmm. okay well then I'll just make a bunch of mistakes and yeah. fire off emails without.
1: <laughs> no, that's right. And that's, I mean, for implicit learning, that's, yeah, that, that's what, but X and explicit, it's weird. I wish there were a blanket answer. So sometimes we extrapolate sports skill to certain other types of skills, uh-huh. but uh, many sports skills are are examples of implicit knowledge. And a lot of other things we do in life are not those kinds of examples. So they actually require different types of training. Hmm.
0: The other thing about what um, you were talking about before that I found cool was this, uh, uh, like, there's a quote I'll read really quick from the book that says, The practice only narrative to explain Tiger Woods is an obvious attraction. Yeah. It appeals to our hope that anything is possible with the right environment and that children are lumps of clay with infinite athletic malleability. In short, it has the strongest possible self help angle and it preserves more free will than any other alternative explanation. And like, that's, I don't know, that, that's the thing, you know, it's like Olympics time. So I, everything sport wise is turning into a major metaphor for all of humanity all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then that's like, a good way to put it. <laughs> everywhere you look. Um, and I, I love this one because it's like, yeah, not only is, can you find all these metaphors in sports, but also just the, you, there's a metaphor in the way we think about sports, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. And And I actually love that part of it. You know, I love that. That striving part of it, I mean, it, it, it honestly became sort of weird for me to become this semi-spokesman for talent because I think of myself as someone who is like a zealot for trainability, basically. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. like I wrote in the book, you know, I, I won my university's award for like whatever the athlete who, people always laugh at this, overcame significant <laughs> challenge and difficulty to achieve athletic success, you know? And, yeah. and you know, and, and I sort of reinterpret that story in the book at the same time. I really believe that if people find the right training environment, they can usually get better at just about anything than they think they will. Um, you know, at the same time, sometimes these metaphors, I think, yeah, I wish the world were that way, basically. But, yeah. but it turns out it, always, it isn't always that way. And I think elite athletes in the Olympics actually often understand that quite well because they have devoted their life to doing what they're doing. You know, the other sprinters that will line up next to Usain Bolt, but believe me, he trains less than everyone else who will be on the starting line. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've been at his practices, he spends more time like trying to balance a traffic cone on his head than he, <laughs> which was not true of his training partners a- and I sort of think there's some intuitive genius to it Like, I think the muscle physiology shows now actually sprinters should be training less than they typically do because it actually dilutes your explosiveness even if the training is explosive so I think mm-hmm. he's actually has an outstanding sort of implicit knowledge of his body mm-hmm. um, but you know the other people who, li- who line up next to him are doing everything they can be doing and so I think they kind of tend to be aware that, um, you know, there are other things that also matter.
0: Right. The thing that I didn't find a whole bunch in the book because it was talking, it wasn't really the point of the book, but also the whole concentration part, like training too much and losing the kind of chillness or self-confidence because you're overthinking every piece of your mechanics. If you're balancing a traffic cone on your head and not worried about it, and then you let, you know, like you said, you have this instinctual understanding it might be better than somebody who's basically freaking out constantly about, you know, their pinky toe and making sure that they push off exactly, you know what I mean, that their their arm technique is correct.
1: No question about it. I mean, there's uh, a researcher at the University of Chicago, Sian Bylock, who studies choking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, she'll say things like, well, if you really want to kind of stymie your tennis partner, you know, instead of saying, like, oh, that was a that was a great shot you hit. When you go up to the you know the net to chat, you say like, "Wow, that was the way you angled the racket on that shot. <laughs> it's just like amazing." You know, because you want them you want them de automating yeah. uh, uh, the skills that they worked so hard to automate. And you know, in, in there, there are parts of the book like so. When I talk about baseball players being struck out by softball pitchers,
0: uh-huh.
1: they don't know why that happened. Like they were challenging Jenny Finch, the softball pitcher. Barry Bonds was, for example, thinking he was going to crush her pitches. Mm -hmm. And it goes to show that he doesn't actually know the basis of his his expertise, right? I like to tell, I know a lot of my sports writing colleagues, sometimes we'll see someone who does something really well, we consider them the experts, we ask them how how they did it, and in Mm -hmm. implicitly learned skills, things that are executed unconsciously, like many sports skills, they are the worst position to know how they do it. So I I have this saying for these kinds of things, it's just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist, right? So like we can't ask the bird like how it flies. And so those skills that are implicit, if you can get someone to think about like an isolated piece of them, that drags it back from this sort of more primitive part of the back of your brain up to the front part where you're thinking about things and and that eliminates the expertise that makes movements fast and smooth.
0: Man, that's some deadly info. (laughs) 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 <laughs> right, <laughs> Just so already thinking about like the table tennis match i'm gonna have later and how to use that yeah don't think about it paralysis by analysis <laughs> you know sort of catchphrases about that so what do you, when you are you gonna
1: watch the olympics do you watch it oh absolutely absolutely i mean you know i'm i'm it's the first olympics i'm missing in a while mm-hmm. um some no longer in illustrated but i'm yeah you know i've been getting solicited for a lot of freelance related to things like like doping, like genetics, like sex testing in sports, and um, I think, I think it's very likely that I'll be somewhere doing something with some media outlet pretty much every day of the Olympics. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So I'll be I'll be following intensely and I'm talking to people that are there already and things like that.
0: So I was try- I, the thing I wanted to ask you about the Olympics is like, what do you watch when you watch the Olympics? Like, what are you not only just which sports are interesting to you, but like how how do you watch it do you like read as much as you can and then watch it or do you just kind of watch and enjoy the drama or do you like have particular people you follow and like follow their narratives or how do you do it
1: well since you know for the last decade i was i was going and so there i would meet athletes as much as i could in sports that i knew i was going to cover ahead of time start getting to know them you know pitch articles about them so mm-hmm. i could i could write about them in the lead up and so i'd you know, I'd follow it from on the ground. At the same time, there's a lot of things you miss on the ground. Um, I mean, the, the first answer is I can, when it comes to the Olympic level, where you have athletes who, you know, you think about almost anything, think about like diving, something that most people don't, you know, know about. And, and it's not like somebody's doing a dive that hasn't been done before usually. And you know these people have done what they're attempting in practice before. So the question is just, will these athletes who are on a stage unlike anything they've ever been on before or since, simply be able to cope with that and execute to the best of their ability. And I find that to be incredibly compelling, And I, no matter what the event is, right? like tiddlywinks, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can really watch anything at, at the Olympic level um, and sort of feel that, you know, sort of empathize with that and think about my own competitive career and all those sorts of things. And actually, watch I really like watching now how coaches interact with athletes, like, because some of them will do tons of hands-on coaching like mm-hmm. during competition. Fencing is a fascinating one because there's something called strip coaching where the strip is the, the surface that they compete on. Mm-hmm. And some coaches do tons of strip coaching and some absolutely swear it off. And so it's really interesting to see how they kind of interact with their athletes in the heat of the moment. Um, but ultimately, I'm a, and, I'm a huge track and field nut. And so I watch like literally everything track and field and of course the eight hundred meters being hmm. objectively the best event. <laughs> um, you know, I take a I take a special interest in that. And actually, speaking of the ten thousand hours and these sorts of things, so Malcolm Gladwell and I, after we had this debate at, at MIT, um it's up on YouTube we actually became sort of interval running partners and we're both big track nerds, so that's what we spend most of our time talking about.
0: Oh, no way. What is he, what was his uh what does he run? He is a
1: borderline world-class 1500 meter runner miler for his age group he was a canadian provincial champion as a teenager and then just stopped really? running yeah yeah so he ran we were when we were training together last year he got invited to run the fifth avenue mile and he ran like i don't know 450 and change 450 or something what? like that yeah yeah
0: how old is he now like
1: 51 or something like
0: that oh, he's no. legit he's an interval really?
1: machine i'm telling you
0: Super hit. Oh, man. I just did, like... I'm, like, not a long... I mean, Miles not that long, obviously, but I've just been doing, like, in the summer between soccer seasons, like, uh, I've been doing these, like, 12Ks just for fun. Yeah. And it's, like, the first time I've run, like, consecutive... 12 ks and I just realized why people like distance like <laughs> distance to me is anything over the like a 5k yeah. yeah and I it just happened like I'm 29 and I've been running and whatever been serious about sports since I was I don't know 12 and I just it just hit me that's
1: great I, you know I had I had after I was done with competitive running I ran competitively a year after college I had to sort of go cold turkey for a little while so, oh, I'll, I'll never feel like I'm in shape again but then after some time doing some other sorts of activities cross training, I came back to it and realized that there are things about it I really just love about the activity itself. And so I sort of had that transition to, to loving it for the process and, and, you know, after my competitive career. Yeah.
0: I'm finding there's like different fitness. There's like different shapes for me to get into that I never knew that I never even cared about before, like swimming and like, you know, I don't know, biking and stuff. Like I never cared about being, being able to, swim i don't know and now all of a sudden and i have so much respect and i i i regret being snobby about it through my teenage years obviously (laughs) that's uh
1: you know your brain wasn't fully formed don't blame yourself (laughs)
0: right um so i have another good question about this i think it's like what's the most amazing physical specimen you've ever seen
1: oh that is a good question
0: Um, I mean, we could put it another way. We could say like, what's the craziest bit of hardware, you know, in your formulation of like hardware and software, what's the craziest hardware you've ever seen?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. I I used to have the office next to Pablo Torre at ESPN. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, he had this, he'd he'd like to play this question, like if aliens invaded and to save humanity, the task was, they they aren't going to tell you what the athletic task is. You just have to pick someone to do it ahead of time. Oh, man. Like, who do you choose, right? So I was like, well, if it was like, you know, having someone surrounded by people and they have to, like, get a package across a line, I'd take Barry Sanders. He's like, yeah, but you don't know. That's the thing. Right. And at right now, I, I, I wouldn't have said this um, other times, but right now I think I would actually pick Ashton Eaton, the world record holder in the decathlon, yeah, I, at maybe a couple of years ago, I think I probably would have said LeBron James. I mean, the way to be there's something even about seeing him in person that doesn't totally come across on television. That is, he's not just tall and large. Like there's like a largeness about everything about him. You know, his Who, hands. Wait, like which a, one, LeBron? LeBron. Yeah, his hands yeah. are like a like a pack of francs. You know, it's like everything's <laughs> just big. And to see the way he moves for someone that big, I mean, I was looking at slow mo video of him on a, on a full-court fast break, and he basically took the step pattern that world-class long jumpers take, mm-hmm. like, intuitively, and it just to transfer his, you know, his energy, and I just thought that was really amazing. So him, but but right now, I really do think if I had to, like, the things that Ashton Eaton's doing, I mean, he's, I don't think ever before the title of best athlete in the world that the athletes have gotten has ever been true before, mm-hmm. and I think it may actually be true now, because he's... He's world class in in events individually, events that are sort of zero sum in their training. Like some take away from being good at others. Right. And he's he's still managing to be world class multiple events. And I think it's just I think it's the first time that the athlete champion may actually be the world's
0: best athlete. I don't know anything about him. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What's the, what's the story?
1: I mean he he came to it he came to it sorta of late. Um which is actually turns out to be very typical of elite athletes. Right. Um, right. Never mind the prevailing narrative. Uh, but you know, was at University of Oregon, then just kind of exploded. I don't know. He's just he's just a uh, you know sort of a good normal guy who's incredible. I mean, he's like a he's like a world class quartermiler, He's a world class hurdler. He's just I don't know. He's just an amazing athlete. Like there's not a there's not sort of some crazy personal story behind it. He just found his. Found his niche with the encouragement of a coach, and has just gotten to levels and events that nobody, that Catholics have never gotten to before. I mean, so he can run, you know, he can compete in the in, he could go to the Olympics, maybe not for the United States, but for almost any other country in the world, in sprint events just as an individual.
0: Wow, never yeah. mind that, it's that fun. So,
1: is that hardware? That's hardware. Well, it's both, but he's, you know, it's always both. It's right, of course. Right, like, of course. Like, without genes and environments, there are no outcomes. But um, he. Clearly, I mean, he's a latecomer mm-hmm. to the sport, for sure. Um, and, you know, he's incredibly explosive. And we know that while you can make certain types of muscle fibers more explosive, ultimately, explosiveness is limited by um, qualities of some of your muscle fibers. And you, you, need to be, you need to be born with a certain type. You know, you can do a better job of building endurance than you can of building that kind of explosiveness. hmm in fact, training actually converts the, your fastest twitch variety of muscle fibers down to less explosive ones. So you really you you, you literally can't train the, to have the fastest type of muscle fibers because any training you do actually takes away from, from how explosive they are.
0: Mm-hmm. What about so? What about the same question with like software? Like, what's the most amazing software specimen? you can think of? Oh,
1: good question. Um, I mean, when I think of things like uh, watching someone like Floyd Mayweather, right, who is, you know, never mind various out-of-the-ring things, um, mm-hmm. the the limits, the speed limits in boxing, the rate at which skills have to be, at, at which things have to be anticipated, makes uh, baseball look slow, basically. Okay. So, like, so a, a, a fast Major League fastball, like a really fast one, takes about 400 milliseconds, um, you know, 0. 0.4, four-tenths of a second to uh, get to home home plate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas a really fast puncher, from the first time you could pick up that his fist is moving if he throws a jab to the time it's fully extended
0: mm-hmm. is
1: 150 milliseconds. Oh, boy. And that's like the time it would take for your... Uh, eyelid to move if I like flashed a flashlight in your face.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, way, it's below the minimum human reaction time just to recognize that something is in front of you for that information to cross the synapses <laughs> at the back of your brain and for you to send a signal to start moving. That's about 200 milliseconds. So not getting hit by every punch from a fast puncher every single time requires incredible anticipatory skill the picking up of body cues. Mm-hmm. And to see the way he defends himself um, and moves in a way that frustrates other boxers I think he must just have you know, this an in- incredible anticipatory database you know he's obviously got incredible athleticism too mm-hmm. but it, I have I, the cool video that I use in talks sometimes where Cristiano Ronaldo is, is taking like a corner kick and, and hitting a header mm-hmm. and he, they can like turn off the lights basically as soon as the ball is kicked and he can still connect with it perfectly And so, like, he's, you know, he's fast and he's strong, and like, but that has nothing to do with strength or speed or, like, whatever, being an incredibly good looking underwear model. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, those things are incredible, guys like him and Messi. But I, since I can't really choose, I would say, you know, a Muhammad Ali, a Floyd Mayweather, because that playing defense the way they did is more time limited than I think anything in sports, anything else in sports I can think of, basically.
0: Well, yeah that's cool. I didn't know that about the boxing
1: yeah it's incredible. i mean so uh, Ali' what well, he was tested on that and his it was actually interesting because this test some some people were claiming that it showed that he had sort of slower than normal reaction speed and it was like and it was sort of picked up on in this weird way by some people with like a bigoted agenda to say like look even this amazing um, guy has a slower brain you know Mm -hmm. and whatever but if you actually look at the data it's like he's near the theoretical limit of human uh, (laughs) speed so they were wrong
0: (laughs) (laughs) so what's the what's the uh like i'm sure your book led to people sending in all sorts of crazy anecdotes and stories. What's the what's the craziest story your book has initiated that you've heard?
1: Well, you know, I, I narrated a This American Life recently, and, and this was, like, probably the most unlikely story I've ever been involved with, you know, since I've been a journalist, where I was, like, yammering about some genetics and sports thing on TV, and a woman named Jill Viles, just a... a woman in Iowa overheard me and said, like, this is what I've been looking for. So she's a woman, she has rare forms of both muscle-wasting and fat-wasting diseases. Okay. And she had seen pictures on the internet of the woman who won the bronze medal in the 100-meter hurdles in the 2008 Olympics and said, she's missing, and, bu- and this woman has incredibly large muscles. So... She said, "This woman's missing fat in the same strange pattern as I am from my uh, disease, mm-hmm. but has these huge muscles. What if like we have the same mutated gene, and for some reason, her body went down this you know losing fat, but having tons of crazy muscle, like totally looks like you know steroids, and my body lost both fat and muscle. And so she contacts me and says, "She thinks this might be important for research. Can you?" convince this woman to get a genetic test and I'm like I doubt it but I'll try because this woman Jill had done her homework I mean she knew her science she so much so that she self-diagnosed one of her diseases when doctors were telling her there's no way women don't get this Uh. so she like smuggled had a friend like smuggle some equipment to draw blood sent her blood to Italy and it (laughs) turned out to be like an index case for finding a gene that causes the disease she has so they thanked her you know in the in the article (laughs) and so she she knew her stuff. I said, this at least deserves an attempt. And so I reached out to Priscilla Lopeschleep, the, the medalist. And she's like, first of all, the coolest person. But also, she's a Canadian uh, bronze medalist. And she goes, absolutely. You know, people have been accusing me of steroid use forever. What do I have to do? I'll send you pictures of myself when I'm from eight years old. You can see I've always... Look different. I'll send you pictures of all the women in my family. And you can see this. Mm-hmm. So she was like motivated to sort of clear her name, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the <laughs> first geneticists we approach, no, not too unlikely. This this woman Jill might be stalking. You know, maybe she has some kind of stalking obsession with this medalist, or that she saw online. Finally, someone agrees to do it. Sure enough, Jill's right. Oh man! And she has this incredibly, um, you know, rare fat wasting condition and. For some reason, caused this incredible muscle growth. So first of all, it leads to emergency treatment for Priscilla, who was about to have an attack of pancreatitis. But nobody had been monitoring it because they're like, she's an Olympic athlete, obviously healthy. We don't even have to do like normal bloods. <laughs> so this random woman in Iowa, you know, using the cutting-edge medical tool of Google Images, right. causes the largest medical intervention in the life of an Olympic athlete, who's you know sees biomechanists, all these sorts of people all right. the time. And now they become the subjects of research. It's totally, I mean, this is, it was just Jill's amazing. And I just couldn't believe it. Were, I, I doubted it too. I just said like, she deserves an effort. You know, it's going to come to nothing. I just, yeah, that just knocked me
0: over. That's crazy. Well, that's like probably a good thing to end on. Cause I don't have anything. I don't even know how to follow up unless we, <laughs> unless we go deep into genetics and then we'll need a lot more than the time we have. Yeah. All right. Well, this was great. I really appreciate it, and yeah, um, fun. I hope you think of us like if you're if you have a new book coming out at some point. What are you working on? Are you just working on pieces, single pieces, nowadays?
1: I'm I'm working on pieces, but I'm I'm starting on a new book also. Awesome. Um, I added an afterword to the paperback mm-hmm. edition of my book that was about early specialization and this data showing that it's actually not the typical path to success, particularly in, like, the sports that require you to learn anticipatory skills that are sort of more complicated, mm-hmm. and I got interested in that. Actually, after this debate I had with Gladwell, he was like, that was a point you had me on. That was tough, that data, and started getting interested in it more broadly outside of sports as well, um, these issues of early special, you know, when is it right to early and hyper-technical specialization, and when is breadth and delaying specialization better? And so I'm getting into that kind of through sports, but but wanting to look at it more in the world in general, kind of as the world becomes as people get more pushed toward hyper-specialization, I think there are a lot of virtues of, of alternate paths that are undersold.
0: Cool. Well, I hope when it comes out, we can do this again and that'd be fun.
1: I'd love to contact me, you know, feel free to contact me anytime. If I can be enough assistance during the Olympics, either connecting you with somebody else or whatever, just let me know.
0: Cool. I appreciate it. Well, enjoy the rest of the day out there. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch. Great. All right. See ya. Take care. Bye. Today's Blinkist podcast was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie Constantino. We're really glad to have Odie back after what the media is calling the Hamburg fish sandwich affair. Odie, thank God, emerged unscathed. If you're looking for more Blinkist interviews, check out our page on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or TuneIn or Pocket Cast or your favorite podcatcher. You'll also want to check out the last few editions. They were on Rethinking Productivity when we talked to David Allen, on Sleep when we talked to Ariana Huffington and Max Kirsten, and Eureka when we talked to Pagan Kennedy and David Burkus. I'd love to hear what you guys think about all this stuff. You can email me. I'm at podcast at blinkus.com. Um, let me know what you think. Let me know if there's someone you want to hear. All that's good stuff. All right, then. That's enough of that. hope you guys enjoyed it, and um, I'll see you soon. In the meantime... Be good. This has been signing off. Bye bye.